0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hey y'all, and keeping with our theme towards freedom, we're now gonna have a lively discussion around uprooting violence with Danielle Sered, Sonia Shaw, Jose Saldana, Antonine Pierre, with remarks from Kiyanga Yamata Taylor, and our powerful performance by Aja Monet, hello. My name is Aja Monet, and um I'm reading a poem today called "For Fahad," which is dedicated to the work of the Center for Constitutional Rights. And it is in my full collection of poems called "My Mother was a Freedom Fighter" on Haymarket Books. When you and I were young, we believed in the sanctuary of peace. I wake sweating, strangled by a nightmare. My America begins the day, chewing on my cry. I am 33 and have never killed a man, but I know the face of death as if heirloom. My country memorizes murder as lullaby. We spoon feed poison labeled patriotism from young. The nation grows fat on fury, full on healthy hatred. We are bloody light, and though the bullet never touched me, I hold it still between my teeth and spit bodies off my tongue. I confess, we are hugging ourselves beneath the rage. Though you cannot see the fire, I am a house of flames. I prepare for another hard day's work and emerge a massacre of meaning, marketing industry of reason. What is treason to a country called love? Fickle and scared, what is heaven to a people who never look above? If there is a movement, if there is a movement, let it be a region in the heart where souls meet to practice human together, though apart. Is there a faith for the faithless, a place for the placeless beyond prison bars? A man becomes faceless, a presence more of essence, a wrath more than wreckage. Is there a crime, a worse crime than stolen time? Have you words to replace a year or life clinging onto phrases? Have you a quote to men, deep-seated wounds, old as cradled breath, to be a casualty of this endless, endless, endless war, humiliated and forgotten rooms of this earth? Every day is a morning. Every day is morning. I touch the welted mark of an ominous night. The only protest is fingertips. Feel this right here. Right here is where they took my survival. I'm the last siren of hope and a glimpse of this torched town. I linger, I linger in your laws and unkept promise. When you and I were young, when you and I were young, we believed... We believed in the sanctuary of peace and we are old. We are old now. I am gray, wrinkled by the pain. I drag my body because there are other bodies on my shoulders. Some cry, others laugh. We mumble stories of remembered past. Have we not learned? Have we not learned? You can try to kill a man, but you cannot kill the love people have for him. And through this shred of silent seed, we grow above, above all the greed. There are roaches, there are creatures, there are critters, there are secrets that know freedom better than, a detainee in Guantanamo Bay and there's an underworld of human oaths a man hums in the horror his voice swarms the silence lamenting for fought breath the body a battlefield he angers for memory of something before a lost son a gone father a left brother an old friend I am a woman watching my country make enemies of God they'd sacrifice the sunrise for a million lies if they could. There are lives beyond the diversion of eyes. His name is his son, his brother, his father. There is a village where names go to wander. When you and I were young, when you and I were young, we believed. We believed in the sanctuary of peace. They should have told us it was war. Thank you.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Danielle Sarid. I'm the Executive Director of Common Justice, and it is my enormous pleasure to welcome to you to this panel at the Beyond the Bars conference today. Um, Joining us are some really extraordinary thinkers in our field and movement, who together today will be having a conversation about violence, about what causes it, what stands to end it, and how that all relates to our movement to end mass incarceration. With us today are Sonia Shah, Jose Hamza Saldana, Antonine Pierre and remotely Kianga Yamahata Taylor, who couldn't be with us today, but we've invited her to offer a pre-recorded section to help frame this conversation for us all. So we'll begin today with Kianga's contribution and then come back to these extraordinary panelists.
2: Hello, this is Kianga Yamata Taylor. Um, um Sorry, I can't be with people in in person, but I did want to um, offer some uh, comments about uh, what I think is the wider context within which we should be having this discussion about crime and punishment and um, really the uh, transformation of the conditions that uh, give rise to both crime and punishment. Um, I think that... One of the uh, critiques of uh, abolitionists or, um, you know, people who may not identify as abolitionists, but who understand that there are uh, fundamental flaws in uh, the misnamed criminal justice system and the, the practice of policing uh, in the United States and believe that there needs to be um, a, a fundamental transformation um, of, of both of those uh, but that there is a critique that uh, the adherents of uh, either abolition or uh, fundamental transformation uh, are naive about the realities uh, of crime, um, and you know I think that uh, there there are two ways to to respond to that. Um, one is is an obvious. Uh, response, which is the police have almost nothing to do with crime. Um, it is uh, rare, if ever, uh, the police show up in anticipation uh, of a crime or show up preemptively to prevent a crime. Uh, the police always come after a crime has always uh, has already been um, committed, and I think the the criminal justice system uh, more broadly uh, really does nothing to address. Uh, the the roots of crime does nothing to address the phenomena uh, of crime. Um, it merely um, locks people up, uh, and, and really has no impact on uh, underlying factors that uh, uh, that do have to do with uh, uh, with with crime. And in, in some cases, in many cases, I would actually argue uh, the criminal justice system um, makes crime worse. Um, and by that, I mean, the um, we've seen through um, Michelle Alexander's work on uh, the new Jim Crow, we, she's actually talking about uh, what the experiences of the formerly incarcerated uh, are, that we can no longer use uh, racial discrimination to legally exclude people, but we certainly can use uh, 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 the whether someone has been uh, incarcerated as a, a pretext for um, social exclusion, if not social uh, social death. Um, and so when that happens, when you have a situation in Chicago, for example, where you know, I, th- I think it's upwards of, Over 60% of um, black men of working age, something like from 18 to 64, in certain neighborhoods on the west side of Chicago, uh, have a criminal record, um, then this actually produces the conditions for uh, crime to exist because people have to survive. People have to find means uh, to survive. And if you exclude people from uh, the above ground uh, work, workplace the above ground market uh then by necessity you create the conditions for an underground uh market an underground economy um and so in that ways the uh intense policing of poor and working class neighborhoods all with the the purpose of actually arresting uh people um and the uh efforts the uh the the profound efforts of prosecutors to imprison people, um, in fact, create the conditions for the continuation of crime um, in poor and working class uh, communities. Um, but I think beyond that uh, for um, prison abolitionists and, and others who uh, understand that we need a fundamental transformation of uh, crime and punishment in uh, our understandings of crime and punishment in um, in the United States, uh, are not naive and do not, uh, uh, put their heads in the sand and ignore, um, that, uh, violence, um, uh, harm, uh, destructive, uh, behaviors, uh, all of these things, uh, exist. Um, so, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's usually elected officials or uh, people uh, connected to uh, the criminal justice system who feel that they need to remind um, the public that crime is a is a problem or that crime is an issue, uh, ignoring the fact that most poor and working class people uh, have to deal with uh, uh, issues of crime uh, in their uh, in their daily lives, um, but that the racism of the police and the racism of the criminal justice system uh, cut many of them off from having any meaningful way uh, to to respond to those issues. Uh, And so I think that um, for our purposes, the point is to try uh, to get at the underlying causes. Um, In our country, in our society, we tend to uh, discuss uh, crime as a moral issue uh, that there are uh, good and bad people in the world and quote unquote criminals um, are the bad people uh, in the world. And, you know, this is a completely uh, unhelpful way of uh, framing this and, and, and thinking about this, that crime is a social manifestation of inequality in our society. Um, and, you know, there might be all sorts of reasons. um uh, why particular crimes are uh, committed. But I think that we really have to uh, socially address the issues uh, that give rise to crime. Um, and most of that has to do uh, with issues related to deprivation, uh, that we live in a society that is has overwhelming uh, abundance, but uh, whose spoils are concentrated at the top. Um, we are living through a period of unprecedented uh, inequality, financial, economic inequality uh, in the United States. Um, simultaneously, while the costs of living, whether that is rent uh, or food, um, are, are going up uh, in, in some ways dramatically, the cost of food has gone up dramatically. Uh, sadistically over the course of this pandemic. Um, and so that mismatch between uh, what people make in wages or income or that there are unemployed people or people who are living in abject poverty combined with the rising expense of living in our society um, really create the conditions where uh, people respond uh, in. In, in in ways that come into conflict uh, with laws that have been created that are also completely uh, irrational um, meaning that you know it's it's not illegal to uh, put people into homelessness through eviction or uh, it's not illegal uh, to stand by and, and watch people suffer uh, from hunger when we have the, uh, means the financial means to uh, to deal with these issues we have the financial means as a society uh, to house people we have the financial means as a society uh, to feed people um, and you know we don't do that and that's not illegal but if you uh, go squat in um, or occupy uh, some uh, structure where no one is living in it that's considered tr- trespassing or if you, Uh, shoplift food um, as, you know, because you need that or you know someone who needs that, um, you know, that's considered to be uh, theft. So some of this has to do with how the law uh, functions and operates in the first place. But uh, there is a reality that, you know, sometimes in working class and poor communities, um, you know, it's not that you're stealing from a grocery store or some other uh, conglomerate, but that you're, you know, as a function of, of segregation, um, as a, you know, function of, of how people uh, cohabitate um, in buildings and neighborhoods, that you're robbing people uh, who don't have it to give uh, either. Um, and that, you know, that's a function of uh, deprivation um, in our society, I, I think that beyond the questions of uh, deprivation are uh, the how people cope with the alienation, uh, the frustration, uh, really the madness that is imposed upon us by living under those types of conditions, and and that you know has to do with um, is how part of how we can understand interpersonal violence, um, uh, domestic violence uh, in some cases. Um, And we have to have means to deal with that, both materially. um, Many of these frustrations are rooted in deprivation. They're rooted in an inability to make up that mismatch between uh, what is necessary uh, to live and what is available. Um, But they can also be rooted in uh, uh, sexism and homophobia and transphobia. Um, And so we also have to have the means to Uh, uh, to deal with uh, oppression as it expresses itself in that way. Um, But I think for for those of us who are fundamentally trying to transform uh, these systems, none of the methods available to us address these underlying uh, issues. Uh, Arrest, incarceration, throwing away the key, leaving people in prison for any period uh, of time, leaving people in jail for any of, uh, period of time is destructive. Uh, it, and it doesn't uh, uh, address the underlying uh, issues. And in the case of public officials um, who in the rare occasions that uh, they are arrested or um, incarcerated, it's even more harmful because it gives the impression uh, that uh something is being done. It gives the impression uh, that uh, this is uh, progress or this is what reform looks like. And none of the underlying conditions um, that have given rise to um, uh, what created the context for uh, a particular crime to be committed in the first place have ever been addressed. And so uh, part of our discussion has to be um How do we get at the root of uh, issues of of crime, um, uh, issues of harm, uh, issues of conflict uh, in our society? How do we get to a point where we can um, actually address those uh, and move away from uh, what I think many people have uh, just come to um, see as the catharsis of punishment? Uh, but without actually addressing uh, any underlying issues, and maybe that is because people have been conditioned to think in our society that that is the best that you can hope for is the catharsis of punishment, but uh, without actually uh, attending to the underlying factors, um, you know, we have been reduced to expecting, uh, expecting that and not um, the change that is necessary Uh, to transform uh, our conditions and to transform ourselves.
1: So to begin our conversation about violence, we want to make sure that we're all on the same page about what we even mean and are speaking about. So we'd love to invite each of you to share with us. Um, how does the work you do reflect your understanding of what constitutes and causes violence? And so we'll welcome Sonia, if you're up for it, to start us off.
3: Hi, everyone. Um, I was secretly cursing and hoping that I wasn't going to be first because I would love to hear from Jose Hamza and Antonine. Um, but I can definitely start. Um, you know, I think... Uh, the most important thing, I think, in any conversation of violence is to understand its complexity, that it's multivarious, and that it is at all levels, um, and that there's no singular cause of violence. Violence is structural, it's interpersonal, it's historic, um, it's dynamic, um, it's got trauma attached to it. And when and we reduce violence into sort of this one singular story or singular narrative of this person caused harm, this person received harm, we lose the whole field of the reality of our lives and context and the world in which we live. So if every situation, whether it's a war, um, whether it's slavery, or whether it's one person doing harm to another is really understood in the context of all the other factors, who's involved, what countries were involved, what history was involved, you know, what happened, Um, I think we have a much better um, pathway to understanding contextually and situationally what to do about it. Um, I think one of the biggest problems we have, you know, in like restorative justice land or this idea of restorative justice or transformative justice is sort of this singularity piece that it's not connected to a bigger story. And I think that what we always have to do is connect these violences to the bigger story.
1: and place it in
3: that context.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, And let's transition now to Antonine. And if you can also address, how does the work you do reflect your understanding of what constitutes and causes violence?
4: Yeah, I mean, Sonia, thank you for opening. I think you (laughs) did great. and for really broadening the scope in terms of what we mean when we say violence, I think that in our current society, we often think of violence in terms of what do people do to each other, right? Like, if I steal your car, what is the violence is caused by that? You may not be able to go to work. You may not be able to pick up your kids from school or take them to doctors' appointments. And the work the work that we do at the Brooklyn Movement Center really causes to say, well, like before we even get into interpersonal violence, like what is the structural violence that is happening? Are, you know, in the place that we work, which is uh, central Brooklyn, Bedside, Crown Heights, are people actively and accurately set up to get what they need to have really positive futures? Do they have access to food? Do they have access to housing, like affordable housing and safe housing? Even before you get to interpersonal violence, because I know we're going to talk a lot, a lot, more about that. But when we talk about the structural violence of social injustice, it creates a, you know, it creates a particular fishbowl, a particular situation where people feel like their very lives are threatened, even though there isn't anyone pointing a gun at them.
1: Thank you so much. Um, and Jose bringing it to you if you can share with us how the work you does ref- the work you do reflects your understanding of what constitutes and causes violence yes
5: thank you i'm so happy to be here amongst beautiful people uh, at rap you know we well first let me just say that we live in a society that almost permanently or perpetually punishes violent behavior but it does so in a vacuum it doesn't Do anything whatsoever to address the environmental, the social, economic, and political conditions that may have contributed to violent behavior. And in fact, we know that it has. America was founded on a very violent history: the annihilation of indigenous people, the slaming of African people, the violent deprivation of people of color's basic human rights and civic rights. So, but it does nothing to address the conditions that we have inherited today. What RAP does, RAP was founded to end mass incarceration or the racist systemic system that promotes mass incarceration and targets people of color and exposes the inhumanity and injustice of perpetual or permanent punishment.
1: Thank you all so much. Um, So you all feel we are off to a strong start here. And moving in this conversation toward the things we think about as to how we should be addressing violence if it is not mass incarceration, would invite each of you to share, given your understanding of violence, what do you see as the most effective ways to address it? Um, And Hebrew wants to. can jump in first.
4: I can jump in. Um, So when we think about um, addressing violence, I mean, we first need to start with who's actually doing the harm, right? Like I think what Jose really lays out is that we're, you know, we can't just address the actual violence that's happening. We need to address the container. What are the conditions people are dealing with, right? Like, uh, you know, we don't believe that human beings are inherently violent features, right? Like we're socialized towards violence and we're socialized towards violence in a way that actually makes it very difficult to understand like what the causes are. So when we think about, okay, like how do we actually get into this? We start with who's doing harm? Why are they doing harm, right? Like what beyond this particular moment has caused harm to happen? And then how do we, how do we address this harm, right? And addressing the harm means that we need to look at everyone who's been harmed. I mean, people who do harm also do harm. So it is about recognizing that we're not talking about a binary. It's not, you know, to go back to the example of stealing someone's car. If I steal someone's car, um, there's, you know, I may be stealing someone's car because I don't have a job and stealing the car and selling it is a way for me to get money to feed my family, for example, right? So if if we only address the part where I steal the car, we don't address the part where I feed, I can't feed my family. Then we're only we're only speaking about the interpersonal violence and not like structurally what's happening. And then, you know, as we start to talk about and diagnose really, like have the analysis of what is actually happening, we also need to think about, well, as we hold folks accountable, what does that accountability look like? Who's in charge of what that accountability is? So if I get arrested for stealing this car and I get prosecuted, but then the person whose car I still doesn't ultimately get any money, they don't get the car back, right? Like there's no restitution. Then can we call the accountability just? And I think that what we deal with in our society right now is that the accountability that we're served it's not really a just accountability. It's like it's an accountability that's less targeted at getting at, at repairing and transforming from harm. It's accountability that really is um, a proxy for slavery in this country, right? A way of um, targeting black folks with targeting non-black people of color, wave targeting indigenous folks and disabled folks and queer folks and people who the society says like. Um, if you do harm, you're disposable, right? Like if cisgendered, straight, white men who have lots of money do harm, we need them in this society. They're our leaders, right? And so, so much of our work is how do we reorganize and how do we reshift how we think about leadership in this in this in this society to say that we actually need everyone to be a leader, and that means that the value of someone, what they contribute to society, is not simply being there or being the subject of a music video, right? Or being, you know, creating culture on Twitter that the value that black folks and other folks are not in charge of society, the value that we bring means that when we do harm, we keep people, right? Like we figure out what, like, how do we actually make sure that the people who do harm and also the people who have been harmed are transformed so that in, in, a, in a community, that a community can start to see itself as more than just the recipient of harm and trauma.
1: Thank you so much, mm-hmm. Sonia. Jose, do you want to jump in on this?
5: Yes. Uh, you know, we advocate for people who have been convicted of violent crime, people who have languished in prisons for decades as a result of that conviction, and we do not exclude anybody from parole justice. But we think, we say that parole justice is racial justice, is human justice. So we have to have a vision of how we are going to deal with things like interpersonal violence. But we fully understand that mass incarceration is a violent agenda. You know, I, I languished in prison for nearly four decades and, and I've seen grandfathers, fathers and sons. In prisons across the state of New York, we have generations of people, black and Latino people languishing in prison. This is violence against our communities, violence against our families. And this is a monumental problem for us, you know, and we all have to contribute in any way we possibly can to address these issues. But we also have to address issues that we are responsible for. You know, we can always say that the conditions that we inherited contributed to our behavior, but there comes a point where we have to take responsibility for our actions. You know, I know that I left four children out there for nearly four decades, they grew up without me, and they suffer terrible harm as a result of that. And as a result of that, the family, the entire family was harmed. I have a responsibility to repair that harm. I have a responsibility to see to it that this type of harm does not visit this family again. And I think that that's where we all can contribute to immediately today in repairing this harm. But it must start with acknowledgement, and I hate to use this terminology, but it it fits our condition. That sadly, as bad as conditions were for us, I grew up in Spanish Harlem. I have to admit that I contributed to my own oppression and that many of us contributed to our own oppression by resorting to the type of behavior we did by selling drugs in our community we have to take that responsibility and see to it that our communities are free of that type of harm. And then maybe we could all unite, form that united front to deal with the bigger problem of stopping systemic racism in our communities.
1: Sonia.
3: Yeah. Um, thank you both. I so appreciate hearing your voices and your the way that Jose Hamza and you frame things. Um, I feel like uh, there's so many things I wanted to sort of add on, but I, I really appreciate, um, you know, Jose Hamza sort of both naming in a, like, kind of, from a personal way, like there's interpersonal and personal harm that we're responsible for. And there's like just structural violence that's everywhere. And there's this, peace about living in a 200% or 300% or 400% reality and being like non-binary about it, it's all true. It's all true. We could have hurt somebody that has impact. You know, there's structural things that have hurt us that has impact. And I think sometimes it's really difficult for our brains and our bodies to hold like all of the things to be true at the same time. Um, when we're living in the day to day and, you know, people are reacting to sort of different parts of ourselves. So my my partner spent 30 years in prison. Um, his mother was um, is native. He's native. His mother was stolen off of a reservation, uh, brought into a white family, was abused, then abused um, him. And, and at 15, he committed a crime that landed him 30 years in prison. And So there's not a day that goes by where I think he doesn't feel sort of interpersonally accountable for what he did and who is responsible for the history and the legacy of what happened to him. And how do we hold those things without one minimizing the other? And then every day, honestly, living in Berkeley or whatever and going, you know, my kids go to a school where nobody understands it and all they see is what did you do, right? It's, it's such a hard thing to navigate, but but can we also look at all of the history behind it? And so I think as a society we kind of need to wake up to the multiple truths, like it, it has to be the new norm to say like all of these things are true at the same time and it is possible for folks to work on interpersonal like sort of harm and accountability and at the same time Really hold this person in their humanity in the structures and the causes and conditions that created that situation. So, um, I I really appreciate that um, kind of the more personal place. Um, I also want to add that I think it's like we just need all the things, you know, we need all the things. Like when we're talking about ending mass incarceration and we're talking about taking down a whole system that we've created. Um, we need our TJ people and we need our criminal justice. Or we need big policy. We need big AB 109s and SB blah, blah, blahs. And we need everyone. So we need the d- domestic violence advocates. We need everyone. We need everyone to be working on it from different angles. Um, and... And I think together there's this way, it's almost like chipping at something, you know, it's like we all have our little tools and we're kind of chipping at it at different directions. And I think that that's really, really important. Um, While I might, our work in the Ahimsa collective or in the realm of sort of working in the interpersonal community realm, I put a lot of my energy and time, I always give like 10 to 20% of my time towards policy work because we need them. We need everyone, you know, and that that kind of work needs to be happening. Um, and I think the last thing I'd say that one of the things I've learned kind of working in the more interpersonal realm is again, to enter it with just a lot of humanity and a lot of love and compassion for kind of everyone involved that is impacted by harm, whether it is directly the people that are responsible, the survivors, the family members. Um, there's a way of holding gently and firmly um, when we're talking about unraveling healing and unraveling accountability and unraveling, you know, all the things that people are feeling, shame, all the things that people are feeling. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's there's no cookie cutter about it. There's no one approach Um, It's all very sort of like dynamic and in the moment. And um, I think we need a lot of patience uh, with those processes as we try to take down kind of a whole system. And finally, that can exist. And I'm back to something Antonine said is like, if we don't have safety, like, you know, people kind of need to have a place to live and like water and like food, you know, and and to not minimize, we're like, yeah, let's have you focus on the harm. And this person is like going home to no hope you know, and has no food on the table. Like, what are we even talking about when we say that, right? So if we take something like interpersonal harm out of
4: that context, it makes no sense.
1: would love to come back to you, Antonine, to dig into this question of addressing structural violence. I want to circle back a little later to the question of what personal responsibility looks like in the structural context. But I think often we just sort of name there's a structural context and then still talk about personal responsibility for the whole time with that as a kind of caveat. And would like to give some space to invite you to share, what does it look like to change that structural context? Like what does it look like to hold accountable those responsible for that structural context? Like how do we move um, those global sets of conditions that I think we all recognize are are responsible and generative of violence.
4: Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, one of the ways, or I should say, one of the, the hugest structural violences that we deal with in central Brooklyn on a daily basis is police violence. And um, when I say police violence, I mean, I think people immediately think of someone being killed by police. And I want to broaden out to police violence being the context of the police state. It's being harassed by the cops every other day on your block. It's, um, like being followed by the cops, right? Like, I think that there's a way that even just having the constant, as my niece has the constant presence of a cop car on your block, um, makes you feel surveilled, makes you feel like you can't move, right? Like, So when we talk about black liberation in central Brooklyn, at the very, at a very basic level, we are talking about the freedom to really just exist without police. And then, you know, when in thinking about how do we fight against against that type of violence, I wanna just talk a little bit about some of the work that we've done in Crown Heights, working with the family of Sahid Vassal, who was killed just around three years ago, this April. And um, Saheed was um, a young man he was 34 years old and a father in Crown Heights who was walking down the street at four o'clock in the afternoon and, and um, was having a mental health crisis. And four police officers came out and fired 10 gunshots at Saheed, right? and he was he was killed almost instantly. And I think that, um, you know, when we went into this neighborhood and, and when I say went into this neighborhood, I mean, we didn't have, right, like we were, we were doing events in the neighborhood, but we really didn't have the relationships that I think really make organizing real. And as we were building the relationships in this neighborhood, we were organizing marches and protests. We were demanding that the officers be fired. We worked with the, the family for the, the whole year of the first, the, um, the attorney general's investigation, trying to decide whether or not police would be fired. And, you know, in in this context, in the work that we do, um, we're talking to black people who have been living in a police state who have like, they have screamed the names of so many other black people who have been killed by police. And as we um, say, like, we're gonna get justice, this is the thing we're gonna fight for, right? everyone's got that feeling of, are we gonna get justice, right? Like, is this actually gonna happen? What does that justice actually actually look like? And that, you know, we, we try not to talk about the fact that black people don't trust the state, don't believe that the state will give us the justice that we need. So here we are three years later and, so many of the structural violences, the social conditions that we talk about still exist. And our work, you know, Brooklyn Movement Center's commitment to this neighborhood, to this area that saheed Bassel loves so much and the people he loves so much and the people who were his friends all over the neighborhood, is to say that justice for structural violence can sometimes look like creating space and creating ways for people to live, for people to flourish. And that we can do this work um, now that we can do this work really around how do we create different ways of interacting with each other, right? Like, how do we make it so that young mothers in the neighborhood have access to healthcare, that they have diapers and similac, right? Like, how do we make it so that um, the conditions of not being able to access mental health care and being constantly surveilled by the police How do we make it so that the conditions no longer exist for another Saeed to be created in that neighborhood? And in doing that, we we address the fact that people don't feel like they can get justice from the system. But then we create a new kind of justice outside of the system that actually shifts the system through our actions. That is is different from, I think, what we're used to, the marching, the processing, the demanding. Um, But it is, I don't think it's any less powerful. It actually just speaks to what people love about where they live.
1: Thank you so much. Um, And so bringing it to you, Jose, to talk about some of RAP's work. And I would love for you to talk both about the work of bringing people home and the barriers you encounter in fighting on behalf of people who've committed violence, and also what you see as our obligation to those returning people um, when they are released from a system of mass incarceration that has caused them so much harm. What does our repair look like in that context? So what's the fight look like and what does the repair look like?
5: What, three or four questions? Uh, Okay, I'll try to remember them. Uh, uh, I wanna first say that, you know, in New York State, we have the super majority in both houses. We have a majority leader, Madame Leader Stuart Cousins, a black woman, Speaker of the House, a black man. And we have a democratic government. I mean, I don't know if you could really call them that. But the thing is that we do have, you know, representation in both houses, leadership representation and that we have to hold these people accountable for addressing some of the systemic racism that dominates, not just the criminal legal system, which includes policing, prosecution and incarceration, but also every institution that impacts our lives. You have to address that. And this is an opportune time. You can't get a more favorable political landscape to start addressing these issues. Now, we advocate for violent people who have been convicted for violent crimes because we believe in redemption. We believe that no human being is beyond redemption. And we also believe that no matter what the sentence is, that the person should not be excluded, not even based on the nature of the crime. So we advocate for their release, at least the possibility of a release. Because I know, and I'm not alone. I mean, we have literally hundreds of elder people in New York State prisons who have been not just mentors, but pioneers in developing the most effective programs that'll help people, if they are given the chance to return back to their family, they return as returning citizens in the truest sense of the term. We we always qualify that by saying, returning citizens to our home community with a moral obligation to repair harm. And that's what's so critical. We, you know, for decades, men and women have languished in prison, practicing this in every prison that we've been in, practicing these concepts and valuing the humanity of all People, Not just people in prison, but valuing the humanity and dignity of all people. And this is a fundamental change from the culture of prison. And I don't want to go into why I say that, but it is a fundamental change for us to value the humanity and dignity of every incarcerated person. And we extend this when we are returned back to our society. Now, the re-entry services are not readily available to the extent that they should be. But we collaborate with re-entry, the biggest re-entry organizations in New York State, so that these men and women, for the most part, they're going to be elderly if their language in prison for three decades or more. They will at least have services available to them. But I'd like to add that if our electors pass these two bills that we advocate for, the Elder Parole Bill and the Fair and Tiny Parole Bill, it will actually save the state hundreds of millions of dollars a year, hundreds of millions of dollars a year that can be used for the necessary re-entry services of every elder, every incarcerated person returning back to their community, and also be used to provide valuable services that are much needed in our community, as opposed to using this money, hundreds of millions of dollars, to have people languish in prison for decades until they die.
1: Thank you. Um, Sonia, I want to bring it to you. And you've all spoken about this sort of false binary uh, with the notion that there are some people who commit harm and others who are harmed. But would love to invite you to talk from a really survivor-centered place about the ways in which structural violence, the ways in which our central reliance on mass incarceration to address harm impacts survivors. Like, what is the cost of that for survivors in terms of their safety? What is the cost in terms of their healing? Um, What do we, what does this look like from the point of view of those who are harmed?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the first thing I would say is, you know, the sense that there's this false notion that there is a survivor um, and that. Pretty much everybody in prison is also a survivor, right? Um, it's almost like you lose that status once you commit some sort of harm and get incarcerated. And so, starting out first with this, with the with the sentiment that we understand anyone that survived a, a trauma, a harm at the hands of another, is a survivor. Anyone who's lost a loved one is a survivor, and most black. Black and brown folks and Indigenous folks have, like you know, four or five in their ACEs scores, so they're dealing with multiple traumas at the same time, and they're surviving those. And so I think to first to to, to sort of enter into the conversation because uh, in in an understanding that survivorship um, is and grief and loss and the pain. Of losing something, the pain of sexual harm, men face, women face, um, cis folks face, queer folks face, and we just really have to really open up that spectrum in ourselves. Once we do, like, let's be real about specific um, situations that happen to people. About well, then what do survivors need when they are harmed by somebody? You know, let's let's really talk about that based on the specificity. no survivor has the same healing journey or the journey of, of, of like coming into their lives and the lifelong journey of living with their pain. Um, and I think for a long time, you know, there was this narrative that victims were only out to convict and to incarcerate. Um, and there was a whole movement, um, a victim's rights movement that looked like that. And it looked very white and it was about being in bed with, you know, correctional officers and then along came a different movement, right, that said that's actually not what survivors want. Um, if you look at survivors across the country and, you know, if you look at, you know, Californians for Safety and Justice did a lot of work around this and a lot of studying, doing a poll of 500 survivors across the country, finding out, you know, that three out of five, four out of five actually don't want incarceration. They want um, people who've done harm to have support, to have counseling, to have services, to have the help that they need, you know, to kind of towards um, healing and reconciliation in themselves and the community. So that's the truth, right? So we had a false kind of truth about survivors and now we have the real truth about survivors. I think the other thing about survivors is that So many survivors that come from BIPOC communities and queer communities already would never call the police because the police have not been their friends. Right. There's not the sense of like, oh, yes, the police are here to save me. You know, so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to call an institution to help me when the institution has only been harmful. So there's already a notion of like that that system doesn't work so either people don't talk about it, don't report it, or they actually have incredible resourcing ways to try to figure it out amongst in themselves with the people who've done harm. And a lot of thought and movement has been birthed. When you talk talk, talk about violence interrupters, you talk about transformative justice. Transformative terms of justice comes from like street workers, sex workers, DV workers, and advocates, you know, that really were like, this doesn't work for us, you know, it comes from queer community and violence interrupters comes from like gang, like deep, like folks that were doing like gang violence prevention that were in it. And that was creative, right? Those were creative survivors that were like, yeah, 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 no, the institution doesn't work for us. You know, we're going to find our own way to do a healing and interruption and kind of get what we need. So I feel like when we're talking about this from a super, you know, survivor centered place, let's, let's not pigeonhole survivors. as like, you know, the, like the, like the anti-god or the demon, you know, let's not see a singular story about them. Let's see them as really kind of creative members of the community um, that are enmeshed in all aspects of this that are saying we have some really creative solutions. I also think about, You know, grandma and auntie and the mom and pop women that I know that are like, they're like the first responders on the scene. You know, they're like the ones that are like, girlfriend, something happens, somebody dies, some sexual harm happens, come to my house. I will be there for you. I will walk with you on this journey. And a lot of those folks come from the place of survivorship. I'm thinking about, you know, Adela in LA, and I'm thinking about so many people who do this kind of work in these really grassroots and really creative ways. Um, And I think in this also with the violence thing is not getting lost um, the piece around queer communities and sexual harm and domestic violence. Because a lot of times when we focus on violence, we we focus on it in terms of kind of these more um, ways of thinking about mass incarceration and homicide and not thinking about gender violence and thinking about sexual harm and really seeing those strategies, you know, are sometimes similar and sometimes different as
1: well. Thank you so much. And so Antonine, when you were talking, it's similar to what Sonia shared. You asked the question about um, addressing the harm that those responsible for violence, you know, have caused and raising the question of what it looks like in practice, who's in charge of what that accountability is. And I think many people believe that the threat of the state of incarceration, of supervision, of control, um, that those things are necessary levers to get people who've caused harm to participate in an accountability process. They wouldn't do voluntarily if just invited by members of their community. And so can you talk about how you engage people in accountability processes without the threat of the state as a motivating or defining force?
4: Yeah. You know, I I think that um, we too often, I think in particular, I mean, when I say we, what I actually mean is our society at large. I don't, I think that our, those who govern our society have created these ways to cast people out, right? Like that the idea is that you've done something wrong and we need to cast you away. And that to really think about how do we process harm in ways that are transformative, we've got to flip the frame. And with transformative justice, we're starting with the assumption that all of, all of our folks are inherently valuable, right? Like, we're starting with the assumption that we need the leadership of everyone in a community to govern, to create community. And we're starting with the assumption that people want to be in community, right? Like, so, Sonia, you were talking about violence interrupters and, you know, how that comes out of um, gang culture. And, you know, gang culture is a real culture. And why does it exist? Because people want to be in community, right? Like people will go against their nature to commit violence, to have a feeling of belonging, right? Um, And that that is as much a part of this conversation as people doing violence to be able to feed their families. So I think that if we can start with the assumption that people want to be in community, then like we can structure our accountability processes in ways that actually are focused in towards bringing people back into community because for someone to do violence or for someone to do harm, it is a breach of a social contract, right? It is saying that I'm going to do something negative to someone that I'm in community with. And that the purpose of an accountability process really, you know, we talk about transformative justice, transforming someone, um, transforming the way a community holds harm really says like, look, these, these conditions suck (laughs) and we want to really make sure that in this process you become and we become different entities from where we started because you know harm is is a a part of humanity right like to, to do harm is something that we all do when we're in relationship with anyone but the question is how can we actually shift what happens as a cause of that harm? How can the harm actually be an impetus for growth and and for change? I think that we focus so much on what has happened to us, what we've lost, where we can't go back. And that actually makes it very difficult for us to imagine, to dream, to ideate, to create in the way that Sonia is talking about, to really think of, well, what do we need so that this harm is less likely to um, happen in the future?
1: Thank you. Um, so, Jose, I want to circle back in that same spirit to something you've talked about with folks inside having been practicing this for a really long time. You know, and long before I met you, I had met many people who knew you as their teacher um, in some of the most critical lessons of their lives, um, not just inform information. And so I wonder if you can share some about um, what that work looks like, because I think. We know that prisons are not built to foster accountability and reflection. Um, And yet there are people who, even in that context, through community, through relationship, like the relationship you're describing, Antonine, like find one another. And despite all of the intrusions of incarceration in human well-being and development and human relationship, like still find a way to this reckoning with the harm that has been caused. And I want to, before kicking this, you say, I want to be really clear that we don't credit incarceration for those changes, right? Like if someone heroically saves children from a burning house, you don't praise the fire for it, even if like what came out of it was a living child. It doesn't mean there isn't praise to be given, um, but it's not due to the fire. And so in a context that is built to diminish humanity, in a context that is built to interrupt our natural capacity for empathy. Um, People who even in that context are able to develop it, I certainly believe are some of our most important teachers of what it looks like to build that human muscle, regardless of what might diminish it. So can you share some, like, what that labor looks like you know concretely like how did how did people do this work together? how did people practice it um, and and then what are the lessons from that?
5: Yes, let me first say that the only purpose prisons serve is to create the need for more prisons. Prisons do not lead to any type of transformation in anyone's lives. The only program that may be deemed somewhat rehabilitative is the college program that is offered in New York State prisons, but it is only offered to less than 1% of the prison population. The only valuable program is offered to less than 1%. And We've seen during the years of imprisonment the brutality of the system that went unchecked. I mean, literally dozens of men stomped out, stomped to death, just beaten to death, kicked to death, you know, with the sticks, just beaten to death with no accountability whatsoever. And yet, sometimes we promote the same type of brutality among each other. We had to address that. And, And we did it in a unique way uh, it, it, actually, it wasn't that unique, but we did apply the social principles of restorative justice. But we had to tweet it somewhat. But we had to attach a, the significance of connecting to history. You know, we have to connect to that history that that for most most of us we're not familiar with. You know, we see in a Hollywood version of this history, but we have to really studied this history for the brutality that it exhibited. So once we understand and we envision ourselves, I mean, really envision yourself like you're there, we came here and changed, all of us changed to each other. And these chains are still on us. And once we really understand that history, then we could begin then we could begin to value each other as human beings, as someone who's in the same predicament, born and raised in the same predicament that we were. But that that understanding, that that has to develop a unique consciousness, a consciousness that compels us to repair, to heal ourselves, And the only way we can actually heal ourselves, because the truth of it is that some of us have did some harm. But the only way we can heal ourselves is by being a part of a movement that will help uproot this legacy of racism. Mm -hmm. The beginning of this whole issue. The only way we can heal is by becoming a part of this movement. And this movement became our path to redemption. And this is how we was, from then on, we was able to apply the social principles of restorative justice to our particular situation. And I just briefly say that when we say respect, respect discards a lot of the principles, a lot of the values that we picked up along the way. Respect means to actually embrace another person, another human being for whoever he or she is. See, these things became more meaning and and that we applied these social principles to our unique situations. And we always reminded each other that we came here chained to each other and we didn't come here as enemies. We became enemies by our response to the racism, systemic racism that we were subjected to. And, and, and it's, it's, not, it's not 100%, you know, we, we get failures, but the people that are out here today, the credible messengers out here today, the people involved in the civic duty, fulfilling their civic duties in their communities and helping in every way possible that they can, those are the people who went through this transformation that I'm talking about.
1: Thank you. And I want to take the direction that you're offering us. And, you know, in this conversation about violence, want to acknowledge that I think all of us on this call, many of us listening are, are people who've caused harm and are people who've survived harm. And the pain that we're talking about is immense. And so would like to draw on um, the wisdom of a Chicago native, not myself, um, Shaka Khan, and put the question to you, um, tell me something good. Right. Like, what does this look like when it works, you know, whether that is about a systemic change, whether it's about a process to address interpersonal violence that you have seen work, um, obviously honoring the confidentiality of anyone in the process. But to the degree you're able to, can you give us a vision of like, give us a picture of what it looks like to address violence successfully? Um, so that we can see it and and move toward it together. So, Sonia, I will kick this one to you first and then come back to everybody.
3: Yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, We spend so much time in, like, deconstructing what's not working. And um, one of my favorite people, Justice Yazzie of the Navajo Nation, always you know, talks about being in a good way and really sort of how the good opens the door to the good, to the good, to the good. So, um, you know, I've been thinking about this, like, so uh, our work and and the name of our organization is the Ahimsa Collective Ahimsa. is a Sanskrit word that means non-harm and non-injury. But we've been doing more and more um, work along sort of every area of, um, not being completely outside the criminal legal system to people who are in the, in the sort of incarceration system to outside of it and different points along the way. And, um, we kind of formalized about a year ago, really taking on every single call that comes to us from a survivor, from someone who's done harm, from bystander person, anybody, anybody who's like, I don't know what to do but I know I want to do something outside the system. So already that's a win to me. Our calls have increased. Like there's this impetus that people are having to have a sort of restorative justice response, a restorative response, a transformative justice response, a response that's saying that doesn't work. I want to try something else and I actually don't even know what it is. And out of those calls, everything happens, right? Things happen where... They lead to like dialogues and circles and, you know, between people that have um, that need to have those conversations. They lead towards men's groups for accountability. They lead towards one off phone calls that are, you know, support for for a person just trying to figure out what they want to do. And I just want to say they're all wins. I think we need to see every response that someone has outside of an institution, outside of calling the police as a win. Like, that's a good thing. That's when it's working. It's working when someone calls, (laughs) you know, it's working. When they reach out to community, it's really working. Um, I I will say just to be more specific, something that happened the other day, which I was really like, it was really meaningful to me. And it was so little, but it was so meaningful. And it was a family uh, um, that reached out, because one of the brothers in the family was doing uh, sexual harm to uh, uh, one of the nieces. And the other family members um, saw it, noticed it, and confronted the person and said, we we know you're doing this, and and that's their brother. And they didn't want to go through um, a criminal legal system context. They were really careful about the support that the young person needed. And they reached out to us in terms of saying, can we, can you help us do um, some family conversations, some family circles, some dialogues, like we really want to figure out what we're going to do here. And we literally just had, you know, we were all ready. It was like a couple of us, two of us facilitating. We were ready to sort of do what they needed. And in two phone calls, they realized that they had the capacity as a family to do it themselves. They didn't need us. They were like, through some clarifying, like, how do we want to talk about accountability? We still love our brother, you know, all these things. Like, what does our our young young person need? How are we going to do this? They figured it out. And, you know, this this was a, a... uh, it just was like one of those moments that was like, it wasn't quite prevention, but it it could be quite a lot of prevention for future harm that this person did. It was talking about real complexity of violence that happens in the family all the time. And it was a bunch of family members coming together to sort of say, you know, like, we're not throwing our brother out, but we definitely need to do something, you know, about this situation. So that's to me a humongous success. It's a huge win, you know. And saying, you know, how are we gonna, you know, really think about safety uh, for this young person, accountability for this person that did harm, and maybe some, you know, some some sort of consequences too that are kind of real, right? Maybe there's some loss of relationship or some time that that person doesn't get to be around the family, which is real. But it happened in such a way that was really, um, I feel like is such a success. So um, my experiences have been anyone that reaches out, just walking with people along the way of whatever journey they're on is kind of a success. Even if it's like two years of working towards a dialogue or if it's like three phone calls that are like, oh, I think I know what I need now. You know, um, those feel really, really good to me. And that feels like it's creating... The alternative system that we are actually trying to create and I really do believe that what we need is a network of folks um, and people that are doing this everywhere across the country that are realizing that they can actually address
1: harm on their own. Beautiful thank you we'll come to you next Antonine what does this look like when it works when we win?
4: So I'm going to name two different kinds of ways that it works. One is a sort of acute, very immediate sort of situation. Another is more like, what does this long time building work look like? So, um, so this past fall on my block, there was a young man who was um, mentally ill, was having a mental health crisis and he uh, broke the windows of a lot of people's cars on the block. Right. And Uh, Someone called the cops. The cops were looking for him. The cops did not find him. Um, What I believe ultimately happened is that the father of the young man got contact information for everyone whose car window was broken and paid for repairs. And this is like, I mean, I want to say this is like not the best case scenario, but one of the best case scenarios, right? Because we see that people experience harm. Police were not allowed to cause more harm, right? I think there still is a question for me of is the young man getting the help and the support that he needs but also his family being in a financial position to be able to be accountable for the harm i think again right like we're looking at how like very acutely this is kind of a win right like no one went to jail um which is which would have again caused more harm and we want to be able to solve these kind of acute issue, issues of harm right like uh, and there's an a, um there's a very acute impact, right? Like there's a, a thing that happens and then we have to deal with it, that we can do this in community, that we can do it without police and that we can figure out what, what is the accountability that has to happen. Now, very often when we talk about violence, when we talk about structural violence, we're actually talking about a culture of violence. We're talking about a lot of people who are impacted by, the, by um, often like a mindset, right? And so some of this work came up uh, at the Brooklyn Movement Center with in our anti-street harassment working group. And we had, it was called No Disrespect. And we had, um, it was led by black women who were like, street harassment sucks. We wanna go out and we want to have conversations. In particular, we wanna have conversations with black folks, with black gender non-conforming women and men about the violence that's happening. We wanna talk to people who experience violence about how they can protect themselves. And we wanna talk to people who are doing violence about how they can do it differently, right? Like how they can be in community with us and not disrespect us and not follow us walking down the street and not scream things about our physical appearance, right? And, you know, I think that there were a lot of um, conversations that we had that were really powerful, right? Like we had conversations with people and I wanna name in this culture of defund and abolition that we would talk to people and we would say, you know, we're trying to solve this problem without police because sometimes they do more harm. And no one was like, please call the cops when someone is hollering at you on the street. So I just want to say that, that the resistance that we met was often about patriarchy. It was often like, what, like, you don't want me to say hello to you on the street. Right. Right. And sort of restructuring, renorming—like, what is the way to actually do this respectfully? And as we are talking about transformative justice and you know the many people, the many entities who can be transformed, I do want to name that we get transformed in in the process of doing this work, right? Like, we're because we come to work to end white supremacy, it doesn't mean that we don't have internalized white supremacy and internalized patriarchy, right? And that in doing this work in community and really being able to move folks who we say are doing harm, we can also move the ways that we do harm and also become, I think, better at the work of changing culture. So, you know, the work of No Disrespect um, have formally ended in 2018. And, we're, you know, so many folks involved both our core leadership team and also our male allies who are working in solidarity with our, our leadership on anti-street harassment work have all talked about how they personally have been transformed, how they have found themselves um, standing up against patriarchy in their workplace, how the our male allies have actually had to confront people in their lives about the, the violence that, that they do. And this is something that when they first came together, they were like, ooh, I need to talk to my friends about violence, this is scary. To doing it and becoming familiar and it becomes a habit and a culture and a lifestyle. And so, you know, when we talk about how we do this over time, I do want to name that, you know, the way that the carceral system creates a lifestyle for us where we want to punish people for doing harm, that transformative justice also it cultivates a different kind of culture, a different kind of lifestyle. And it 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 requires us to say, you know, the way that we hold each other in community isn't actually supporting community. And we're we're learning through our own personal work, how to hold community more powerfully and how to get the things that we want coming um, out of um, an incidence, not even an incidence, but even just again, just the the fact of living in these cultures of violence.
1: Beautiful, thank you. Um, Jose, what does this look like when it's good? What does it look like when we win?
5: You know, right before I was released, maybe just a few months before I was released, <clears throat> you know, I was part of a facilitating crew that facilitated a course, a six-month course on character and empowerment. And this course actually questioned a lot of the, our belief system, you know, and the value of it. Whether it's a bankrupt system, bankrupt creed a bankrupt model, way of life, or or does it have any value today? Does it have any value for us to continue on this struggle for freedom, justice, and equality in this country? And everything was based on this, this goal. So naturally, most of the people had to admit that some of the creeds that they live by in the streets and even in prison, prison codes, prison streets were bankrupt or counterproductive or destructive. So we went through six months of questioning our shortcomings, our character shortcomings, questioning our fundamental flaws in our thinking and behavior. And, and you know it was it, it was very intense. It was very intense, sometimes heated, sometimes very, very emotional. You know, we, it was a real, it was a real session. No fakeness about it. no war stories being told. People actually sharing some of the most intimate parts of their lives. Towards growth, towards empowerment. And at the end of the sixth month, you know, we said there's no graduation here. Now you have to live by this set of values that you say you embrace now. And we asked everybody to just give a little statement as to what they learned. And one person who was a, a leader of a gang, uh, a real a bona fide statewide leader of a gang, I didn't think he was gonna stick it, stick with it. I, I you know I seen him I said, oh yeah, well, he'll be here a couple of weeks and we won't see him again but he stuck through it for six months. And at the end, when it came his time to say what he got out of this program, this course, he thanked all three of us, the facilitators. He says, I want you all to know. And he got very, very emotional. That y'all changed my life? And that, to me, is the reward, that we change a person like him. Changed his life. And hopefully, you know, he'll live on now with a new set of values that will help not only him, but his family and his community.
1: Thank you all so much for this just really um, deeply moving and deeply inspiring conversation. And I want as a way of closing out to invite each of you to share sort of call to action for the folks who are listening um, of whatever shape or size you want that call to be. Um, so Jose, we'll send it back to you for that first call to action.
5: Okay, thank you. This is my favorite part. <laughs> We advocate for two bills. They are a moderate approach to uprooting the racism that exists in our criminal legal system. And we'll do what we all want, reunite families. The elder parole bill has 25 co-sponsors in the Senate. We need 32 to be a majority. And the fair and timely parole bill has also 25 in the Senate. We need 32. So these bills are supported by nearly over three quarters of our legislators. What you can do, everyone listening, is call your elected senator and assembly person and tell them that you support the elder parole bill and the fair and timely parole bill. And if they are not supporting it, that they should support it. And visit our website, that's the RAP website, RAPPcampaign.com, and you will be informed of all the activities, the events that we have going on. And have the conversation with, if you're involved in the church, discuss what justice should look like, what criminal justice should really look like, whether it should be permanent punishment and revenge, or whether it should be balanced with redemption and transformation. Have this discussion because we as a community can and should define what justice looks like for us.
1: Thank you so much. Sonia, coming to you for your call to action.
3: Oh, oh, yay. Um, yeah, you know, I was thinking about this and, you know, I know that for me, like thinking about harm and violence and trauma came from a really personal place, you know, as a survivor of child sexual abuse and feeling very lost in my, you know, teens and twenties. Um, the question was really personal and deep. Like I, I knew that I'd just wanted to understand and I wanted to heal and I wanted other people to understand and heal. Um, and so I guess to whoever is out there, you know, I think there's always a spectrum of people listening that are like brand new to like, how do I get involved? Like, it's okay to just start with like, like what's your way in what's, what's going on in your heart that is putting you in the place where this is what you care about. Um, whether you're incarcerated, whether you're a person in community, you know, um, whether, it's down your block whether it's inside of yourself whatever it is like what is your way in and let that guide you to the next way in and the door that opens the door to the good to the good to the good um and and i i think there's also something about cultivating patience um one of my mentors his name is Jayash base says you know act with the urgency of tomorrow but the patience of a thousand years act with the urgency of tomorrow and today and the patience of a thousand years we're in it for the long haul we're in it for the big arc and I think we need to really feel that inside of ourselves um and then I guess finally is just I mean I remember early on like I'm going back to like college days and being like why is there violence you know like I wanted to know I wanted to understand I wanted to be like I understand you know and I think some of that Kind of colonization piece is to think that there's like you know an answer or an, or a or a treatment or a diagnosis there is no treatment diagnosis or answer you know it is so complex It is so deep um, so just really listening to what everybody said here to really take in the complexity of the depth Uh, You are are getting the answer right here. If this is new for you, right? This is the answer. The answer, the response is right here. When you hear stories, when you hear different approaches, when you hear um, that honors sort of our multivarious perspectives. It honors our diversity. It honors like that we're coming at this from our rooted lived experiences from different places and that our solutions are sometimes the same and sometimes different, you know, and that we really value that in each other um, and not to come at it with, I have a model, I have a way, and this is the way, and this is the model. And that's the only thing because that's colonization that's actually oppressive, you know, it, that's oppressive in some ways. So um, just to be open, be really, really open to where your heart is taking you. If you're really speaking to people that are kind of, and the younger, the younger ways, and the younger place to trust your intuition, to trust your lived experience, to trust that you have a place, um, and to trust that there are folks um, that are really out there um, that want to look after you. And then finally, um, that we start cultivating some eldership in here too. Like you know, I have I have really um, drawn so much from my elders, um, and I have uh, really in, in in this part in this decade you know i feel like some of that kind of a couple of decades ago was getting kind of lost and i really want us to have our you know work with our elders to 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 for their own healing and also that we start to create models of eldership um where there is so much wisdom of lived experience i'm um, looking at jose and hamza he's my elder he's got the experience and he's got wisdom of and I want to respect that. And so what does it look like to respect our elders? We talk about our young people. Let's talk about our elders. And I really love them. So that's kind of my, that's my, that's my takeaway. And I'm so excited. But just thinking about these gems of these people on this panel, it's just been so, so beautiful. It's time with you.
1: Thank you. And Antonine, take us home with your call to action. Thank you. So,
4: so I'm, I'm going to give you all um, the stock to action it's gonna be nice um but then i'm also gonna give you a call to action specifically for the beyond the bars crowd so you know if you you love us of course give us money we take the kind that um we take the kind that folds (laughs) and we also take the kind that jangles right and it you know i do want to just name how really important it is to fund this work and that um you know, we talk about this work being a labor of love, and labor costs something. So I just really want to lift that up and name that um, we really want this work to be well funded, that's black led, and that's in community. And if you, um, if you live in Bessey or Crown Heights, if you're from Bessey or Crown Heights, and you're like, I really want to throw down, become a BMC member, right? And BMC membership, I think, is so. I'm biased in how powerful I think BMC membership is, and we really create space for black folks to be leaders in this movement, right? Like if you've been marching on the street and you're like, well, how do I do the thing? Like, come, come with us. We're doing the thing. And if you're not black and you're in central Brooklyn and you're like, Ooh, it's black led Can I be a part of it? Sure. Um, But it's, it's not an organization that's led by folks who are not black. So definitely consider our solidarity membership and consider what it means to disrupt anti-Blackness by supporting the leadership of Black folks. So that's that's my stop call to action. Now, I know where I'm at. So to the behind the bars folks, what I want to say is that BMC is right now engaged in some really amazing research, um, community research. And I think when we hear research, we hear you know, come take this survey and get your Target gift card, right? And that's that's not what we're trying to do, right? Like we recognize, you know, to the point of bringing money into our community, that there is a ton of money in academia that goes to a lot of people who are not in our communities to study our communities. And what the work that we're doing is saying that we need to bring that money down, and we need to, as we not just extract people's experiences of, around policing and incarceration, but really say. You know, there's a role for you in creating a different experience and shifting the conditions that make it even that we have to do a research study. So, if you are interested in being a part of the really amazing research work that you're we're doing, if you're like, I can lend research support, right? If I know people, I'm in the neighborhood, and I want to be a part of this, then reach out to us because, you know, I think we're following. In the footsteps of really awesome organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance, who have really been spearheading this work of how do we create relationships between academia and communities that are ultimately going to disrupt not just the narratives, but the conditions in which people live.
1: So thank you all so much you know, for, for your wisdom, for your generosity of spirit today, most of all, for all the work you do to transform this world we share. Um, so massive, massive thanks and massive thanks to all of you who've attended Beyond the Bars today in this virtual world. And we look so forward to seeing you in person in 2022.
0: Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening.